Welcome to the Impact Sessions, a business podcast hosted by me, Nick Bramley, CEO and Director of Impact at Impactus Group. The Impact Sessions brings you weekly insights and experiences from some of my most valued, trusted and influential business contacts across a range of current, interesting and hopefully thought-provoking subjects designed to give you some practical tips and ideas to drive continued success in your business. On this episode of the Impact Sessions, I'm interviewing Solat Chowdhury. Solat is going to talk about all things to do with equality, diversity and inclusion. He's got some fascinating insights into why those areas have commercial, financial and operational impact in your business. Enjoy the podcast. So this morning on the podcast, I'm delighted to introduce Solat Chowdhury. He's the group CEO of UK and Irish Centre for Diversity. Now, I've known Solat for well over 10 years. He is an absolute champion of everything equality and diversity that's great in business, socially, and I'll touch on it at the end. He's got some sporting connections and sporting ambitions in that area as well. So first of all, Solat, welcome to the Impact Sessions podcast. Thank you, Nick. No problem. Great to see you again. Um, what we'd like to do is I've got a, a series of, of, of sort of light touch questions, as I call them, and we'll just have a chat through about your sort of take on the whole equality and diversity agenda. It's it's big, it's getting bigger, but you were at the forefront of starting a bit of the movement of that, weren't you, going back about 10 years or so? Yeah. Uh, so if you look at people refer to EDI, and when we first started, people weren't talking about EDI at all. They were talking about E&D, D&I, Equality, diversity, but actually we put the equality, diversity, and inclusion together, mm. um, and it's we've done something pretty radical now. We've created something called Freddy now, which are the six elements, the essential elements of an inclusive workplace culture. Right. If one of these is missing, it's all missing. You cannot have an inclusive culture if one of these is missing. So, what what does the acronym Freddy stand for then? Fairness, respect, equality, diversity, inclusion, and critically engagement which wow. determines productivity. Wow. Okay. I mean, I, I've not worked with you for a little while, so I, I hadn't seen that new Freddie acronym. But let's go back to the start of our sort of relationship. And, and yeah. one of the reasons I invited you on, apart from being, I guess, the UK and Ireland uh, expert and forefront uh, forerunner of this, is you said something to me about 10 years ago, and it's always resonated with me. It was basically you said that equality isn't about treating everybody the same, which I found... Fascinating, really, because most people's assumption of equality is we treat people the same, don't you? What's your view on equality, and why is that not the case? Well, I think it's it's the same thing that um, teachers employ in the classroom, right? So if you've got a child that's from a, a deprived background, let's just play with a stereotype just for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes a stereotype just fit a, a lot of a lot of kids in in modern day um, Britain. Uh, a child, mother's um, alcohol dependent, father's in prison. Um, then you've got another child, dad's a barrister, mum's a doctor. Mm. Okay. Now those two children have got uh, radically different backgrounds. They're in the same class. Mm. If the teacher she, um, teaches the, the children in exactly the same way, you, the, the outcomes are going to be not desirable. Mm. They're not going to be the, the outcomes that you want because the barrister you know, is going to be able to tutor and the doctor will tutor them in maths and physics and all the homework and they'll take them to all sorts of experiences and holidays that the other child just won't get. Mm. So the child's immediately at, at a disadvantage. Now, if you translate that into the workplace, 
you know, it's about managers recognising that people have different skills and abilities. And if you treat exact people in exactly the same way, um, you're, you're not going to get the best out of people. Right. So equality is not a broad brush approach. Equality is teaching, treating people with equal respect, I guess, and create an <coughs> environment where it's equally uh, valid for them to thrive. Is that is that kind of what your take on that is? It is. It's about recognising uh, the, the needs of a particular individuals, meeting those needs and getting the best out of those people. Mm. Ultimately, as employers, we want to get the best out of people. Yeah. We want to create conditions where they can give us the best. And that, that means sometimes treating them slightly differently. We do. All managers treat different employees slightly differently. Mm. So it's just an extension of that. But in terms of equality in the workplace, naturally human beings... You know, that when the brain was developed, it was developed millions of years ago, and it was all about fundamentally about survival. Mm. And one of those, our survival instincts is that we hang around with people like us, because in times of danger, those people like us will stick up for us. Like a pack animal. Like it, exactly, like tribes, you know, and that's why you see the tribes, the football crowds, all sorts of stuff. Yeah. And that's why it's so important, that's why inclusion is so important, to be a part of that tribe, a part of something. The issue with it is that there's a nac- national, inc- um, a natural inclination to kind of uh, hang around with people like ourselves, and so we gravitate to people like ourselves, mm. and so that, and so therefore, you know, in your company, unless you Nick yourself, you had 100 employees, you probably have 100 people like Nick Bramley, mm. right? Well, 100 Nick Bramleys in your organisation wouldn't get your organisation very far, even no. as talented a man as you are. <laughs> You know, there's only one Nick Bramley, right? So well, it, it, it would be a dangerous place for anyone to be, I suspect, yeah. Yeah, so you need a whole diversity of skills of thoughts and abilities. People at different height, you want to hire your differences, don't you? Mm. People that think in a different way. Um, and equality is not one of those things that will just come naturally. In fact, it's one of those things that comes unnaturally. Mm. You know, if you look at human beings, primal instincts are to hoard and not to share. Uh, and to be. if you look at a child, a child's, uh, you know, like a, a toddler, the way they are, they absolutely. And I remember my son uh, when when he was a, a year and a half. I gave him some a bag of crisps, um, and I took one of his crisps and he took it out of my mouth. Yeah, because right. it's a natural instinct it's not like, to share at that age, isn't it? You to have share. to teach them these kind of things. Yeah. Okay. So we actually socialised. So one of the so the survival instinct is not to not to really be interested too much in equality. It's more about yourself, and then we get socialised the other way. Mm. But actually, we are socialised the other way because. It helps our survival if we do share, mm. look after each other, because in times of need, people will share with us and look after us. So equality, unfortunately, it's not natural. It has to be, it has to be engineered to some extent, mm. uh, and that's a difficulty. But if you can, if you can, if you can do it successfully, you know, there's worldwide evidence which suggests that your company can really benefit. I'm just going to say you can be world beaters, can't you, based on that? I mean, I always say that if you look at successful companies, one of the things you look at is culture, isn't it, and and, and part of that. So, okay, well, you're um, a group CEO of the UK and Irish Centre for Diversity, and and that, as as an organisation, leads the field in raising awareness and educating business leaders and business people on the whole sort of agenda around equality, diversity, inclusion, and Freddie, as you've said now. Um, do you just want to share with the audience how and why you got into that? How did you start off um, thinking, first of all, there's a gap for this and, and then structuring the, the, the response through how you've set up the business? I think the first thing is my, my dad was into this, right? So this is some, there's something in the blood, mm. uh, something in the genes. Uh, and my dad used to work in community relations uh, way back in the, in the 50s and the 60s. <coughs> Excuse me. And um, so it was kind of, you know, it, it, the equality movement was was 
brought to me. I was I wasn't taken to it. Yeah, I, I didn't take to it. It was I was born into it, I suppose. Uh, and then when you're a very young child, at the age of four, bring you know being brought up in Blackburn in the 1980s, mm. and you first realise what racism is when, as a four year old, you're weed upon by older lads calling you a packy. Mm. It kind of makes you. Uh, it brings brings the message home. Um, so that's you know the whole thing is for me it's a mission. You know it's why I wake up in the morning to, mm. to make a difference. And, and actually in two thousand and five, you know I, I'd worked in the police uh, for five years as serving const- police constable. I'd worked as a racial harassment uh, as a racial harassment officer, and I'd worked in regeneration companies that were working in deprived areas. Mm. So for me it was just a natural progression. Um, into there's a mixed demographic in those deprived areas, isn't there? Yes, and 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 you know they they have a they're a hotbed, aren't they, of, of of challenges, I guess, around the whole kind of you know fairness, equality, diversity, inclusion, that kind of thing. So, like you say, it was probably some some nurture, some nature, some background on that that take, took that forward. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I, when I was brought up, I was brought up in a town called Burnley. Now, Burnley is a very white working class, well, it's it's, it's Asian and, and white working class um, town. And I was brought up with white working class people. Um, and I tell you what, some of my friends that I had then are still my friends now. Mm. Um, and it was, um, it, it was a, it's very, it's an individual situation when you look at kind of the class class warfare in our, in our country at the moment. Um, what you see is that middle class people I find middle class people far less comfortable and confident with work, white working class people than I am. Right. Okay. So actually, it's nothing to do necessarily with race. It's so much to do with sort of uh, social status, maybe social status, um, disadvantage, uh, underrepresentation. Lots of these issues are to do with class and mm. poverty. Um, and, uh, I, and I guess in the UK, the media doesn't help because the media is 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 fueled, isn't it, by sort of different ownership and different agendas. So you got you got sort of far right, far left, um, and very few middle ground sort of uh, press, etc. So they're all, I guess, perpetuating those kind of challenges, aren't they? You know, so yeah, I mean, yeah. there's lots of nonsense talked about race. R- race is is far more complicated than people can ever imagine, mm. and it's far more subtle. I had a friend at school, I won't name him here. Um, but he purported to be into the National Front and all that kind of stuff. Um, and he was always all right with me. And, and and sometimes I'd come to school with no money and he'd lend me some money. One day we were walking through Trafalgar Flats in Burnley. And Burnley, that's a very, very rough, tough area. Uh, and there was this, I, I was 15, I was in school uniform and so was my mate Lee. And uh, we were walking to town. Uh, and this bloke came over to us and uh, he, he, he came, he was quite a big fella. He's six foot two, six foot three, and he's a lot older than us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he uh, came into my face, and he and he and he said something really nasty, and made a, a nasty threat right in my face uh, of a very racist type. I looked at him; he didn't do anything though, and we, and we carried on walking. I said to Lee, um, "I said oh, I thought I was going to get, I'm going to get it." Then, and Lee said, "No," he said, "There's two of us." Right. <laughs> this is the guy who was supposed yeah. to be to the end. It's not as straightforward as people think it is. No. Okay. Well, let's take into a business uh, uh, context as well, because it, it is about where you come from and what the passion's about and what, what drove you to start this off. But um, since 2005, how has the whole sort of equality, diversity agenda changed? Um, and is, is, is there more or less needed now in terms of, you know, shaping the political landscape? Are we getting there or is it still frustrating? What's the score in terms of the business world? Well, I think things are moving pretty well. I think the, the, the right. So there's the, the corporate world 
right? Seems to uh, be getting it. Mm. You understand? We're talking big business here, aren't we? Big business, yeah. yeah. And particularly in Ireland, we see that large organisations are really getting it, and here as well. Mm. Um, and actually, they're the ones that are leading the charge because the politics has, has moved towards the right a little bit since ever since uh, you know the Brexit referendum and, mm. and the run up to it. Um, so the politicians have moved to the right. My experience of the people is that yes, there are there are concerns about things like immigration, but actually, when you go to football matches and you you hang around with people and thousands of people on trains and in matches, <laughs> the way that the people are is it, completely different to the way that perhaps they're being portrayed. Mm. So that's one of the differences. The other difference is that in the field, you know, I always thought right, it was it was populated by social scientists, when people like history degrees, humanities history. Now what you've got is you've got people with PhDs. There's mm. worldwide research being done. You've got neuroscientists. You've got the engineers that are, um, you know, civil engineers that are coming into the into the field, actually understanding the importance of it. There's a guy called Duncan Elliott, managing director of Gallifrey Tri, civil engineer by by uh, qualification and trade. The way he speaks about it, the whole thing about Freddie is just so articulate. Mm. Uh, and uh, so what, what I always thought when these kind of different people with the different thinking come into this field and merge with the social scientists, you'll have uh, you'll have some tremendously powerful information and a tremendous impetus, and we're seeing that. Mm. It's a very exciting time to be in this field right now okay. because you've got all these different people with different backgrounds coming into it. Well, you're at the forefront of that. You created a, what I call an internationally recognised accreditation called Investors <coughs> in Diversity, and that was created you know way back probably 2005 2007 something of that nature yeah. how does investors in diversity work and why would an organization look to take that journey towards accreditation then because that's quite a an interesting journey where there's a there's a there's a goal at the end of it of, of receiving some kind of recognition businesses shouldn't do it for the recognition they should do it for the cultural piece but you know what is the journey how does investors in diversity work Solat? okay if you leave aside the fact that you know the moral imperative Leave that to one side and just talk about the business imperative. The business case is crystal clear. You know, you can outperform your competitors by up to 35% if you've got uh, women and ethnic minorities working in your organisation. You're reaching all sorts of different indicators, goes up by 75 85% in terms of penetrating different and new markets. Your understanding of, of niche products, it all goes up. Um, so you've got, the business case is quite imper- um, kind of compelling uh, in terms of how investing diversity works, it just helps you harness that diversity and that talent uh, to, to be ultimately more profitable. And it works in three very easy steps. Fundamentally, we just help you evaluate where you are at the beginning. Mm-hmm. doesn't matter where you're at the beginning, we can help you improve. It doesn't matter. So even, even if you think you've got um, kind of embedded policies on, you know, HR, yeah. equality, diversity, you've got whether it's a tick box in a... Uh, uh, a, a kind of induction pack or whatever it might be. Whatever the starting point is, the starting point is the starting point. Is that right? Yeah, and it doesn't matter where mm. you are because investing diversity is not about comparing apples and oranges. It's about improvement. Mm. So it's about the improvement from when you started the process to when you finished it. Mm. So three easy steps. Evaluate where you are. It doesn't matter where you are. Yeah. You can be brilliant or you can be at the other end of the scale. In the middle, we just help you improve. Okay, so evaluate, tell you what you need to do, help you do that, help you make the improvements. And the third step is simply to do the evaluation again to see how much you improve. And what we always say is, as long as you own, lead and deliver on the agenda and listen to our advice, we guarantee you will see significant measurable improvement. Okay. Guarantee it. And over what period then would a, an organisation 
um, take the accreditation route then? How long does it take from the initial <coughs> assessment to the subsequent post-session assessment? Depends on you as an organisation, depends on where you are, mm-hmm. depends how determined people are and how um, kind of mobilised uh, people are and how leaders, how much leaders commit to it. Mm-hmm. So Galliford Tri have just done it, I think, within about nine months and they've got from standing start to leaders. They're a big company. Yeah, just this morning, that's breaking news, actually. I'm breaking it on, on, on your... Uh, Ec- on podcast, on thank podcast, you. Yeah. Galliford Tri are huge, aren't they? I mean, I, I yeah. don't know how many thousands of employees, but they're, they're a big, for those who don't know, they're a big UK construction company. Um, and I guess from what you said earlier about the CEO, um, that's driven by that passion at the top, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that was, that was Duncan Elliott. You know the, the civil engineer that's coming to this field. He was he was very uh, skeptical about it. Right. Um, he admits himself in the early days it was we just thought well we need the accreditation so we get some funding, but he said over time when he started to interact and talk to people and, mm. and understand about the subject he realised that this is a real powerful transformation mm. stuff and and actually he can improve his business and he has done. But but a massive company for nine months is unusual, I guess. What what would you say the average time? If you're a if you're a small medium sized company, you might have you know uh, anywhere between twenty and two hundred staff. How long would it typically yeah. take to get an investors in diversity accreditation? Then so that on average, it takes anywhere between twelve and eighteen months to get investors in diversity okay. uh, and leaders in diversity. However, transportation some transportation organisations some organisations that are very kind of old. 100 years old, they've got really major cultures to turn around. And and really embedded processes as well, I guess, at that stage. Yeah, yeah. Maybe, you know, somebody's taken up to three to four years. Mm. Um, doesn't matter though, does it? doesn't matter. It, it's a continuous journey. You never, it's a journey that you continue to go on because things just change. Yeah. Every year something changes. You know, you might have to make uh, cuts, redundancies, you might have to take new people on. Mm. The nature of business change, new contracts, you know, new customers the nature of business changes, doesn't it? Mm. Almost on a, a monthly yeah. basis. Yeah, the, land, the landscape of everything does. So, it, it, like you say, it, it's at the heart of what they do if they get invested in diversity, but they have to keep revisiting that. You mentioned there briefly leaders in diversity. What's that all about then, Sonnet? Sorry. Yeah, so normally when you get something like this, you get a gold, bronze, silver thing going on, don't you? Mm. It, where to get gold, you have to be a little bit better than silver. To get silver, you have to be a little bit better than bronze. Mm. Leaders in diversity is not about that. It's about the leaders. Mm. The leaders are the most powerful people in our organisations. When you look at culture change, where it happens in society, it happens at, at, at kind of um, at grassroots. Yes. And then the politicians then latch onto it once it's already yeah. running. But in companies, uh, often, most often, culture change comes from top to the top. Mm. It's usually something that makes it happen. Uh, a, a death in service, redundancy, restructuring, a new chief exec coming in with new ideas. Mm. Uh, and so uh, that uh, that whole impetus is driven by by the by the chief exec. What was your question? Uh, it was basically about lead, leaders in diversity yes. being different <laughs> to investors in diversity. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and so therefore, um, because leaders are so important, you know, leaders in diversity is about developing the competence and the capability and the confidence, not just competence, but the confidence of mm. leaders to actually lead on this you know, tremendously important business improvement area. Mm. So investors in diversity is company-wide and leaders in diversity is for the cultural piece around the senior management team, senior leadership team, that kind of thing. Yeah, okay. and it builds upon investors in diversity. Yeah, you so go for one first and then come, would you run them concurrently in terms <coughs> of you know people doing both at the same time? Some people do. Some people go straight to leaders in diversity. Uh, we, we, we speak to people and we look at where they are 
and we'll recommend whether they go for investors in diversity first yeah. or whether we think that they could be mobile enough uh, to be able to go to uh, be able to go okay. to uh, leaders in diversity. So how is it all delivered this then? Is it, is it training, e-learning, workshops, coaching? What kind of things involved in terms of um, your delivery mechanisms for the organisations and so on? Well, the good thing about it is that you, go, you get your own dedicated advisor. And it's right. their job to walk and talk you through the process. They'll mm. never leave you. Mm-hmm. You get your own personal relationship manager back at the office. So you've got at least two people supporting you throughout the journey. Mm-hmm. The advisor's job is to do two things, to ad- help you advise, um, to advise you and help you implement the, the changes, but also to do the assessment. And it breaks away from the old system of having people um, parachuting in on a, uh, to do an assessment on a particular day, in a particular week, in a particular month, in a particular year, mm. taking a snapshot of what goes on. Yeah, because actually you're getting a photograph, aren't you, of a, of a business on any given day, but it could be a good day or a bad day, couldn't it? Exactly. Mm. So who better to know your organisation than the person that's been with you over a 12-18 month period? Mm. And obviously the integrity of the standard is then protected because it, the recommendations of that advisor go to an external panel mm. who then put put the advisor through the paces to make sure they haven't shown bias towards the organisation, or indeed yeah. a bias against the organisation. Okay. So... In terms of where you are with all of that, are there any commonalities between the types of businesses or the sectors that you work with? Um, and are there more opportunities for you to make a continued impact in areas that are underrepresented in investors and leaders in diversity then? Yeah, I mean, we, we work with uh, uh, all three sectors, so private, public and voluntary. So some of the organisations that we work with are, you know, very famous ones, Coca-Cola. Mm. In Ireland, we've got the likes of Hertz, Nestle, um, Deloitte's. Um, some of the transportation, Northern Rail, Abelio Scott Rail, mm. Transport for Greater Manchester, oh, wow. um, uh, Vinci, Amy, uh, Galliford Trail. So they're all construction, the last three, aren't they? Yeah. And stuff. So yeah. Why do, quick, quick question, mm. why do they not shout about that then? Because I, I know all of those companies that you've mentioned, and obviously they're all household brand names in the UK and Ireland, um, but I, I don't see that much on social media them championing stuff and shouting about it do they keep it under the hat and just say that's what we're doing and we're good at what we do I think it's maybe I think they do they do shout about it certainly Uh, we have our grand awards each year um, and we make a massive big deal about it Um, I'll have have to feed into your channel then for that (laughs) so I apologise for missing that I think it's certain channels and if you're not in those channels you probably might miss it and Mm. that's probably what it is okay so in addition to your role at UK and Irish Centre for Diversity, you've got a non-exec role and various other sort of um, groups and organisations that you advise. So, quick question. You're passionate about what you do on a day job. You're embedded in your day job. How the hell do you find time to add value as a non-exec and as an advisor in all these other fields? How do you, how do you, how do you manage that then, Salah? Well, I think it helps. I love the stuff that I do. Mm-hmm. You know, somebody said that, um, you know, if you find the job that you love, you never go to work again. Yeah. Right. So it feels like that. You know, I love the work that I do. I love the non-executive director role with the Association of Colleges, where I think, terrific organisation. Mm. Um, and actually, I've got two jobs now, isn't it? I've got this one here in the, in the UK, and I've got the Irish job as well. Um, and, and you know Caroline Tyler very well. Yeah, She's very yeah. demanding. <laughs> I, yeah, actually, so I don't know, does she work for you or the other way around? I work so for her. I, I, I suspect that would yeah. be the case. Yeah, she's great though, isn't she? Yeah. She is, yeah. She's as passionate as you about the whole thing, though, isn't she? She is. She, and she's she's at the start of that journey. She, I mean, she set up the, the, the Irish Centre about two years ago, mm. 
Um, so where I was when I first started, that is where she is now. Mm. But the, I, think, I suppose the benefit is that she's got somebody like me who's been around and getting on a bit now. But, uh, you know, the older, wiser head now, I guess. Well, I think it's, it's one of those where you've seen stuff, you know what to expect and you know what the hurdles are going to be, really. Um, yeah. What do you reckon in 2020, what do you reckon the biggest challenges still are to this? For you as a, as a, a, a recognised body... And also for the business communities of UK and Ireland and even globally, what, what are the biggest challenges that, that you and Caroline should be sort of working on? I think it's, it's still obviously uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, human beings crave certainty and there's still lots of uncertainty about what's going to happen with Brexit. Um, and I think one of the things that, that, that uncertainty creates is, is this uh, delays and people to dither mm. um, and to wait. You know, I think that's 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 the same for all businesses, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I guess, yeah. I mean, doing nothing is probably a, a safe option, but when they should be doing something. Yeah. So what would your message be to the business community listening, watching this podcast and, and, you know, when we share it a little bit wider, what should they be thinking about in terms of their own equality, diversity and, and, and Freddie for 2020? What, what, would you, what would your advice be to a business to say, this is what should be on your radar, what you should be doing? I think the first thing is really to uh, understand where you are now, mm-hmm. you know, and understand the opportunities. Start, start to game out the opportunities that you might be missing out on. Mm. Right? If you're a business, right, you're ultimately set up to make money. Okay? Yeah. Um, and uh, you might be losing money by not embracing Freddie. So I would say get to know Freddie. If mm. <laughs> the first thing I'd say is evaluate you are, where you are now. Evaluate the opportunities that you're missing out on. Against Freddie, then? You'd evaluate against Freddie? I, I certainly would, yeah. because um, if you've got a culture um, in your organisation that's not inclusive, then the evidence suggests that you are losing money. You're going to be losing money. Yeah. If you can make it more inclusive. And you're certainly losing opportunity, aren't you? Opportunity, definitely. Yeah, yeah. Deloitte uh, worked out in 2015 that if you can increase inclusion in your organisation by just 10%, mm. you basically win back one day of work for every person that works in your organisation. Goodness me, if you've got a big organisation, that's an awful lot of free uh, work from your workforce back into the organisation, isn't it? Yeah, so yeah. we work with YBS, they've got 3,500 staff. Yeah. Right, so they can win back one day, 3,500 days of work yeah. by increasing their inclusion by 10%. But without any staff cost increase. Without, exactly. Okay. Just, just repeat Freddie again for people, because I know we've mentioned it a couple of times. You mentioned it at the start of the podcast. What, what does the acronym stand for again? Yeah, it's it's fairness, respect, equality, diversity, inclusion, and engagement. It's the engagement piece that people forget, but engagement is so, so important. And then again, Deloitte's worked out what other people haven't worked out, that diversity plus inclusion equals engagement, equals productivity, equals more profits. Excellent. Now... What's the measure of that for an organisation who might not be the size of a Deloitte or a Galliford try, and they're interested <clears throat> in the whole piece? What is their, what's their measure? Where would they find? Have you got resources available to them to, to download or look or assess or scorecard or whatever? Right. So we were working uh, with the likes of Vinci, Amy, um, Galliford try, Effage uh, Kia, uh, on creating a, a, a package for very small businesses. Mm. Now, it's something that we can give to small businesses. So it's things like um, uh, video e- uh, e-learning, um, it's policies and procedures, suite of policies and procedures, um, it's a manual of, of guidance, it's some good practice guides, it's, it's stuff that we can just give to an organisation mm. to get 
um, help them take the first step. So if you've got an organisation of 5, 10, 15 people, mm. you know, it's an ideal thing for you. It's not investing in diversity, it's a verification product. Mm. But what we've launched it with these major nationals, uh, national companies, and what we want is for the likes of local authorities and transport authorities to accept this verification as proof of uh, commitment to its kind of to the whole Freddie agenda. Um, so it's something that, that's going to be in the next five, ten years extremely useful um, because you can use, so hopefully you'll be able to use that one verification mm. for all. It's a one-size-fits-all approach for yeah. uh, that we're trying to do. One of the things in the UK, if you're working with the big public sector organisations, NHS trusts, um, local authorities, etc., is they are very early adopters of, of initiatives such as these. Uh, and probably you've got a number of those on your books. Um, are they now filtering that down as an expectation on their supply chain then? Yeah, that's exactly what's happening. So the likes of HS2 and Highways England being very, very strong on this. Mm. Uh, and they're certainly expecting, uh, HS2 um, uh, have stipulated that they want their tier one, so the big the big major companies, yeah. um, to have a standard. Uh, so therefore, lots of uh, construction companies have come to us uh, to, to, for us to help them with, to get their standard. Yeah. Uh, Highways England, we're an approved supplier for them. Um, uh, and so therefore we've been helping a lot of their uh, tier one organisations as well. But yes, this all comes from a section, I don't want to get into the legalities of it all, Section 149 of the Equality Act 2010 stipulates that public sector organisations by law must advance equality of opportunity right. across all the pro- um uh, functions including procurement right so their supply chain at tier one levels the next one yeah. if you're a tier one supplier so uh, you know a, a big a big construction company it makes sense for you to set sanity check your tier two suppliers yeah. against the same standards doesn't it yeah and then we can do all that for them yeah you know at no cost to them it's, it's only a few hundred quid for smallest organisations. The price of a night out, yeah, yeah, you know, for small organisations. So it's a win-win-win situation. But but the the value piece of 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 a credit. I know it's not accreditation like an invested in diversity because it's smaller. Mm-hmm. But the value piece of being sort of vetted and 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 um, sense checked against standards has got to be worth the investment of a few hundred quid anyway, isn't it? For yeah. anyone who's who's aspiring to supply into tier two for into tier one level businesses. Yeah. If you look at the freebies we give, it's far more than you know than the value of uh, yeah. um far more than we charge anyway. Okay. Well something let's take it away from business. I would like to finish with something on a personal level. You're a massive football fan, aren't you? As I am. Uh, we support very different teams with very different histories and backgrounds. Yours is more successful than mine. I won't mention, well, I will mention it. You're a Man United fan. <laughs> Fair point. I support Middlesbrough, which is, you know, uh, unfortunately uh, by quirk of birth. Um, but you go to games. You've mentioned already about the sort of tribal aspect of football fans and the fact that it's a really warm and friendly and engaging place. You're trying to establish a, a, a black and Asian uh, supporters' trust across the UK. First of all, how is that going, and what's happening with that? Very early days, um, we're having some really positive conversations. Uh, I think we're going we're to uh, apply for some funding at some point uh, to get somebody to do this full-time, because you can imagine how much I've got to do with my other day yeah. jobs. And, mm. um, so that's the first thing. We've started to talk to different bodies. Uh, one of the bodies that we've talked to is Manchester United Supporters Trust, the, the mm. world's largest supporters trust, yeah. 200,000 people, supporters, um, that they represent. Uh, and they're very positive about it. Um, so it, really, it, it's not it's not about divide, dividing people up. 
I certainly don't want to go and sit with a load of black and Asian people at a football match. I want yeah. to be a part of the atmosphere, mm. you know, the mainstream atmosphere. But you want to make them welcome to a football match. And you, and, and I go sort of home and away to watch Middlesbrough. Um, and you don't see in m- many of the grounds, you don't see a representation of the communities that those football teams serve, really. So, you know, that is that the ultimate end game? Yeah, I think for me, uh, I'd, I'd like to see, let's start with basics, right? For me, I'd like to see like vegan food. Yeah, I'd like to see halal food, maybe kosher, um, a little bit of a small little prayer room somewhere. You know, when it's when the games are going to happen uh, during Ramadan, maybe some facilities to have a little, little bit of food to, well, at the time you want to open your fast. So it's these small little practical things, mm. uh, and, and just um, so culturally welcoming, really. Yeah, yeah. I think football, I think football's a, you know it gets a lot of stick, but I think football's done more than most of the sectors around equality and about promoting uh, certainly um, racial integration. Mm. We still get some odd challenges on, you know, and they're always high profile and they're very disappointing to see in sort of 2019, 2020. Um, hopefully, you know, those will get resolved by swift action by the clubs and, you know, the sort of uh, sanctions that should be in place for those. I've got a quick final question on a sports level. Um, you don't see many... Uh, footballers in the UK certainly from the Asian uh, community you've got obviously uh, Son at, at, at Chelsea but from I'm thi- uh, at uh, Tottenham sorry apologise for that Son at Tottenham what I'm thinking of is from the Indian subcontinent particularly there are very few if any that I can think of a representative of that um, culture playing professional football in any of the four professional divisions in the UK What can you, why would that be because the love football clearly is a you know the, the, it, it's got a big following. The Indian uh, Premier League's growing rapidly over there. You know why is it why is that not uh, taking off in terms of professional players? I think there's a whole range of reasons. You know I think one of the reasons is that you know I, I in Blackman particularly they have Asian leagues right. When you play in those Asian leagues, I played in those Asian leagues mm. for about a season. And they're nowhere near the standards of other standards that I played in other leagues. Um, and, and that thing about tribalism is people flocking to birds of a feather, flocking together. Well, that doesn't open up opportunities for you to, to get higher. That's mm. the first thing. The second thing is that lots of lots of Asians I've spoken to, um, whose sons have been really good footballers, and they've, they've said to me that there is stereotyping. Mm. You don't see many, in the same way that you don't see many African or Caribbean people um, in employed in, in football clubs at higher levels in mm. management, administration, or even on the medical side. Yeah. We do see Asians. Yeah. Okay. Uh, there's a stereotype in which suggests that Asians don't play football and they can't play football. And um, That can't be true. Well, it's not true because Asians love football. And honestly, I've met some, I've played with some brilliant Asian footballers. But there's one that I can think of that absolutely should have been a pro. Mm. Uh there's two of them actually that I think of. You know, when they when, when you put them into an Asian setting, they were world beaters. Mm. And I and I'd seen one of those players play in a team that I played in, and, and he just couldn't translate those skills. Right. He didn't feel comfortable enough or confident enough or, or whatever the feeling it was. He just didn't produce it. Mm. So I think I think the stereotyping thing is there that people just don't think that Asians can play football. or... Um, where you know, I mean, it hasn't it hasn't got a, a strong history. At, you know, in India, uh, Pakistan, ne- they've never been at a World Cup, for example. They've never been represented in yeah. a in a major tournaments and and you know those kind of things. So, in some respects, 
it's sort of a self-fulfilling myth, isn't it, really? You know, because you've never done it, you're therefore not that good at it, but you only get better. Um, you know, China, massive, never been in the World Cup as far. Well, they've been in the odd World Cup, but they've never torn any trees about World Cups and things. And yet you look at Japan uh, at the last World Cup, they were sensational. Mm. And, you know, they've invested in a, pro- a professional league, the sort of um, the, the pro league over in Japan. So I guess it's down to I guess, investment and, uh, and 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 all those kind of things, is it? And, and and just creating an environment where genuine equality is seen by the football clubs and the football culture. Let's give this guy a go, irrespective of you know background or whatever. If you have got the skills, you have got the skills, haven't you? You have, um, and I think it's that you know. I think there are stereotypes. I think it's the way that certainly Asians approach football. You know, I think the culture of football in the Asian community is only kind of my generation and down. Right. My dad was never interested in. In uh, football, yeah, he never came to watch. He stopped me playing for two years. You know, I was a decent player. I was an amateur, a decent player. Yeah, uh, didn't have the pace to become a professional, but I had all the rest of the the rest of the skills. I yeah, had, yeah, but not the pace. Um, but that you, you could play for Middlesbrough then. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I think it's it, it has been a cultural thing, but I think you know people my generation down want the sons uh, and even daughters now to to become professionals. Yeah. Will it happen in the next 10 years? Well, it should have happened in the last 10 years. Yeah, yeah. And it didn't. You've got more chance probably of coming from somewhere like Egypt or or Algeria Mm. and becoming a professional footballer in this country than you have coming from Blackburn or Leeds or Manchester. From the the Asian community? From the Asian community. Wow, okay. Well, we could talk about football all day, Salah, and we have done indeed on (laughs) on a number of occasions socially. Um, Last question for you. What's next for Salah? What's on your challenge and what's on your list to-do list for, <coughs> for 2020? Right. Well, it's a really good question that you've asked there. Because in 2022, we want to create the UK Year of Diversity. Wow. Um, I, I didn't. I should have mentioned that we've, ju- we've just signed up uh, for Leaders of Diversity, the 2022 Commonwealth Games. So that's that's major. Where's that being held? That's held in, uh, in Birmingham. Birmingham, I thought it was. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So wow. something like 4.1 billion people will watch the Commonwealth Games in 2022. So I've spoken to the to James Walsh, the legacy manager there, uh, about the 2022 campaign. Uh, so we've started discussions with them about doing something jointly with them. Um, they want the, the Birmingham Games want to do lots of firsts, and this could be a real good opportunity to establish oh, wow. this as a first as a first year. It won't happen in 2022. You got to do it in 2020, haven't you? That's what you're spending your time on building that sort of platform. Yeah. So I think we'll be looking at uh, some lottery funding to get that up and running. Mm. You know, it'll be a self, self kind of um, running thing. It, it, the National Centre for Diversity will try and promote it and get it moving, uh, and then it, it'll have its life of its own. I think yeah. it, it'll be it'll be amazing. Oh, that's a fabulous ambition, Salah. That's, I, and I wish you luck with that. And I know you from, you know, a uh, long-standing relationship. I'm sure you'll make a, as big a success of that as you have done of everything else that you've, you've, you've done around the whole kind of piece, really. Um your contact details will be on the end of the podcast. I'm sure you've inspired a lot of people to think about uh, sort of Freddie and particularly the sort of the end piece of that in terms of engagement. Mm-hmm. If anybody wants to get in touch with you, all your contact details are available on the end of the podcast. Uh, so like it's been an absolute pleasure as I thought it would be. And uh, thanks for being a guest on the Impact Sessions. Thank you very much. Absolute pleasure being with you this morning, Ian. It's been too long. It's been too long. Thanks, mate. Okay.